Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Myths and legends come in all sizes. Atlantis, that's a big one that we can't seem to wrap our heads around. But maybe Homer was just yanking our chain. Feed a cold, starve a fever. That's wrong. Depriving yourself of calories may make it harder for your body to fight off that infection or virus. We only use 10% of our brains. Again, wrong. Neuroscience has proven that to be false. The right number might be about 20%, but there's a lot of dispute over that, too. Here are some other great myths that I've run across. Don't feed pigeons uncooked rice or they'll explode. The Great Wall of China certainly isn't the only man-made object that can be seen from space, and you certainly can't see it from the moon. Oh, and the fact that men think about sex every seven seconds? Untrue. Now, it does happen a lot, but there's no basis in any scientific literature that says it happens every seven seconds. If that was the case, we'd never get anything done. There are also myths and legends in music, too. Robert Johnson's Pack with the Devil at the Crossroads. Gene Simmons of Kiss did not have a cow tongue grafted onto his. Jim Morrison, Biggie, Tupac, and Elvis are most certainly still very dead, but Paul McCartney is still very much alive. But what about the alt-rock world? What kind of myths and legends lurk there? Well, stick around. I think you may be very, very surprised. This is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross. Mama Cass choking on a sandwich. Keith Richards snorting his father's ashes and weird things about what was found in Rod Stewart's stomach and Stevie Nicks' bum. These are just some of the myths and legends that live on in the world of rock. These are very different from conspiracy theories. They're more like friend-of-a-friend-of-a-friend stories that originate somewhere and then get endlessly passed on as if they were true. The internet is lovely for this sort of thing. And what keeps them going is that every once in a while, not often, but often enough, there's a tiny grain of truth hidden in the story somewhere. The alt-rock world has its own myths and legends, and we're going to spend the next hour carefully separating the truth from the fiction and winnowing out all the alternative facts. We're going to start with Marilyn Manson. A big part of his shtick is misinformation and misdirection. He has always loved to keep people guessing about who he really is and what he really believes. It's great marketing and great brand management. But sometimes people depart from the script. Let's start with the most common Manson myth, that he's actually a grown-up version of child actor Josh Saviano, who played Paul Pfeiffer on The Wonder Years. That is totally incorrect. Not true. Saviano is now a lawyer and doing his own thing. And no, he did not play Winnie Cooper on Mr. Belvedere either. That was Danica McKellar, who is now a well-respected mathematician. All right, well, what about the story about Manson being a Satanist? That's got to be true, right? Well, not really. 
He has little time for any sort of organized religion, although he did hang out with Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan and the author of the Satanic Bible. And yeah, in return for the visits and the company, LaVey did ordain Manson as a minister in the Church of Satan. But Manson considers that an honorary thing with no practical power or meaning. I quote from Manson himself. I'm not and never have been a spokesperson for Satanism. It's simply part of what I believe in along with Dr. Seuss, Dr. Hook, Nietzsche, and the Bible. I just have my own interpretation. We'll let the fact that he released an album called Antichrist Superstar slide then. Did Manson have some ribs removed so he could uh, orally pleasure himself? Well, no. While it is true, he does have an interest in body modification. He's never gone that far. Manson also did not tattoo his private bits black. He did not have breast implants, pull someone from the audience to have sex with on stage, or distribute puppies to the audience to be torn apart on cue. These are all various Manson myths that have been circulated and have freaked out various people in various localities. But, sorry to say kids, all those myths have been busted. This next myth is one of my all-time favorites, and I think about it every time I transit through Heathrow Airport in London. Let's start with the truth. Sid Vicious, ex of the Sex Pistols, died of a heroin overdose in his sleep in the early morning hours of February 2nd, 1979. This happened at 63 Bank Street in the Greenwich Village area of New York. At the time, he was out on bail, awaiting trial for the death of his previous girlfriend, Nancy Spungen. Now, legend has it, and this cannot be proved definitely, that he died with a note in his pocket that said, please bury me next to my baby in my leather jacket, jeans, and motorcycle boots. Goodbye. Whatever the case, Sid was cremated, apparently because no funeral home would take his business. But where did the ashes go? One version of the story has Sid's mom, Anne Beverly, taking the ashes back to London where she ended up spilling a good chunk of them at Heathrow. Now, there's much disagreement as to where this allegedly happened. It might have been in the arrivals area, might have been on the tarmac, or maybe on the concourse somewhere. I can't even narrow it down to which terminal it was. The spilled ashes story goes on to say that some of the ashes were sucked up into the airport's air conditioning vents. And even today, bits of Sid circulate in the air. Some say that his ghost haunts parts of the airport. It's a nice one, but it's not true. According to, uh, well, semi-reliable sources, Sid's ashes never left America. Several people who were close to Sid say that his mom took the ashes to King David Cemetery in Philadelphia where Nancy was buried. She hopped the fence, snuck past everyone, and dumped the ashes on Nancy's grave. Much against the will of Nancy's parents, by the way, who wanted nothing to do with Sid. So, while we can't say for sure where Sid's final resting place is, we can safely say that you won't accidentally breathe them in if you find yourself in a dusty arrivals lounge at Heathrow.
Some myths and legends are so incredible that they just can't be true. For example, how about the story of Joe Strummer of The Clash? Did he run a marathon in Paris dressed in a chicken suit? <laughs> I know, I know, I know, but, but let's just go through it. Things were starting to go poorly for The Clash in 1982, and manager Bernie Rhodes was looking to goose the press a little ahead of the release of the Combat Rock album. So he told Joe, look, why don't you go away for a while? Take a break. We'll deal with things here. So Joe did. But meanwhile, Bernie spread the story that Joe had disappeared and nobody knew where he was. Not only that, they were afraid for his safety. This went on for almost a month. But Joe was fine. He decided to take a vacation, turning what was supposed to be a fake disappearance into a real one. He went to Paris, where he passed part of the time by running in a local marathon somewhere around 4 hours and 30 minutes. Or maybe it was 3 hours and 20 minutes. We're not sure. Every time the story got told, it changed. One version says he prepared for the race by drinking 10 pints of beer the night before. And any pictures of Joe on race day don't show him wearing a race bib or looking particularly tired at the finish line. Somehow, this mutated into the story of Joe running the marathon in disguise. And eventually that disguise became a chicken suit. Sorry to say, but it's not true. It's too bad, though. That's a good one. But remember how I said that many myths sometimes contain a grain of truth? This one does. Joe most certainly ran the London Marathon, and his official time was 4 hours and 43 minutes, and that he did it without any proper training. It's impressive, but, you know, I like the chicken suit story better. Joe Strummer and The Clash. He did run at least one marathon, yes, but sorry to say that it was never in a chicken suit. When we come back, tantric sex that lasts for hours, allegedly. You're listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. We're sorting through some various alt-rock myths. Are these stories really true? And again, we're not into the realm of conspiracy theories. Those tend to be on the sinister side of things. These stories are just, uh, just weird. One story that has lived for more than 40 years involves David Bowie and Mick Jagger allegedly getting it on. This goes back to the early 1970s. This much is true. Both Bowie and Jagger were experimenters when it came to sex. When they met after a Bowie concert in 1973, they became good friends. They were seen in public a lot together. Clubs, concerts, even sitting together ringside at a Muhammad Ali fight. At least one biographer credits Bowie with introducing Mick to gay culture. And one of David's backup singers, a woman named Ava Cherry, said this, Mick and Dave were really sexually obsessed with each other. Even though I was in bed with them many times, I ended up just watching them have sex. They became very close and practically lived together for several months. Other close associates at the time confirmed that everybody knew this sort of thing was going on. But the lid really blew off the story when Angela Bowie, David's ex, finally could talk about their relationship after a legally mandated silent period following their divorce expired. 
On May 4th, 1990, she appeared on the Joan Rivers show and claimed that she caught the two of them in bed together, naked. But this is all she saw. Them in bed, together, naked, and asleep, which really doesn't count, does it? But like I said, there were plenty of other people who will swear that back in the early 70s, it did happen. So I guess we can almost say that this myth is true. Okay, Tokyo, South America, Australia, France, Germany, UK, Africa. No matter where you are, I'm with the music, sweet music. There'll be music everywhere. There'll be swing, swing. All right, all right, not the greatest cover in the world, and the video is 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 really bad. But watching Bowie and Mick as they dance through the clip, you can kind of imagine, uh, well, you know. Let's stick with myths about sex. And this brings us to Sting and his alleged assertion that he engages in marathon sessions of tantric sex. And I will tell you right now that this story is completely false. It all began in 1993 when Sting was interviewed by Q magazine. With him was his buddy, Sir Bob Geldof. They had a few drinks, not really the best sort of preparation for an interview with the English music press. And as anybody who knows Sir Bob, he's not the most tactful person when speaking. He thinks it, he says it. The tape machine was running, and the exchange with the interviewer went like this. Geldof, what about that yoga thing? You're into that? Sting, I can take you to higher levels, yeah. I started to use it to have sex. Now where you don't spill your seed, you retain it all and go on for longer and you never lose control and you just keep going. Geldof, where's the fun in that? Ten seconds is about my max. Once that story got out, it blew up into something extremely weird. Sting thought it was hysterical, so when he was asked about it, he started modifying the story even further, which is where the Sting can do it for eight hours at a time thing came from. He just added on to the rumor for fun. Bottom line, though, it's a lie. Police with Sting, who, sorry to break the news, does not and is incapable of engaging in eight-hour sessions of tantric sex. It started as a drunken joke and just got weird from there. I almost don't want to go down the white stripes road again, but it appears I have to. People swear that Jack and Meg White were brother and sister. That is wrong and that is false. So here we go one last time. Jack Gillis, which was Jack's birth name, is the 10th of 10 children from a large Catholic family in Detroit. None of his sisters is named Meg. Meg White was from Gross Point Farms, a little to the west of where Jack grew up. She has one sister named Heather and no brothers. So, where did the brother and sister thing come from? Jack met Meg while she was tending bar. They began to date, and they formed the band. Then they got married on September the 21st of 1996, and in a twist of convention, Jack decided to take Meg's last name, which is how Jack Gillis became Jack White. In those early days, Jack was all about misdirection and myth-making. 
In some interviews back then, he kept referring to Meg as his little sister. Some people all the way up to the New Yorker magazine bought that and printed it as fact. And even after somebody posted their marriage certificate online in 2001, they kept up the act. Why? Well, here's a quote from Jack and Rolling Stone. When you see a band that's two pieces, husband and wife, boyfriend and girlfriend, you think, oh, I see. When they're brother and sister, you go, oh, that's interesting. You care more about the music, not the relationship, whether they're trying to save the relationship by being in a band together. The truth is that Jack and Meg were married on September 21st, 1996, but then divorced in March of 2000. They not only stayed bandmates, but friends. In fact, they've attended each other's weddings, even serving in each other's wedding parties. Very interesting couple. And I had to have this talk with you Because my happiness, it depends on you And whatever you decide to do, Jolene The White Stripes featuring ex-husband and wife Jack and Meg White. Three more myths to bust, or not, coming up. Now, back to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. We're spending this program debunking various myths from alt-rock history, and now things are about to get kind of bloody. When I was a kid, the legend was that every member of KISS was in league with the devil. In fact, KISS apparently stood for Knights in Satan's Service. It's a good try, but not true. Then we heard about a KISS comic book featuring ink that was made from the band members' actual blood. And this was actually sort of true. They flew to Marvel Comics' printing facility in Buffalo and were ushered into where all the ink was kept. A notary public witnessed a vial of blood being drawn from each of the members, which was then mixed in with the red ink destined for the KISS comic. Of course, pictures were taken, and it was all camped up pretty hard. So, yes, there was KISS blood mixed into the ink, but the amount was so small you'd never be able to detect it. But I can tell you that it's not just KISS who mixes blood with their art. So do the Flaming Lips. In 2010, Wayne Coyne extracted some blood from his body, a fairly substantial amount, too, and created a Lips poster with it. If you search the web for Flaming Lips and Blood and Poster, you'll find a YouTube video showing the whole thing. And it didn't stop there. In 2012, the Lips came up with a special piece of Record Store Day vinyl called Heady Fwens. Not only did the clear vinyl vividly show traces of Flaming Lips blood, but the band also demanded that any of the collaborators on this record also contribute their precious bodily fluid for 10 special editions of the record. Well, like who? Well, Chris Martin of Coldplay, Kesha, Yoko Ono. So how much for one of these things? Well, the original MSRP when they went on sale in April of 2010 was $2,500, with proceeds going to the Oklahoma Humane Society and the Academy of Contemporary Music at the University of Central Oklahoma. I've since seen these records on sale for more than $6,000. It's interesting that the album featured a song called, Is David Bowie Dying? 
The Flaming Lips, featuring Neon Indian with the song called Is David Bowie Dying from 2012. The album is Hetty Fwens, and yes, there is that blood-filled vinyl edition that goes for more than $6,000 these days. Back to sex for the next story. Does producer Brian Eno have a large collection of exotic pornography? This story has circulated for ages, and it turns out to be absolutely true. In fact, Eno is an expert in all kinds of porn. For proof, I refer you to an article that appeared in The Enemy in 1974, written by a wannabe punk singer named Chrissy Hind. Yes, her. She had a chance to interview Eno, and here's what he told her with a completely straight face. It's a burning shame that most people want to keep pornography undercover when it's such a highly developed art form, which is one of the reasons that I started collecting pornographic playing cards. I've got about 50 packs, which feature on all my record covers for the astute observer. There's something about pornography which has a similarity to rock music. A pornographic photographer aims his camera absolutely directly at the center of sexual attention. He's not interested in the environment of the room. I hate the sort of photography in Penthouse and Playboy, which is such a compromise between something to give you a hard-on and something which pretends to be artistic. The straight pornographers aim right where it's at which is analogous to so many other situations where people think one thing is important. So they focus completely on that and don't realize they're unconsciously organizing everything around it as well. I have such beautiful pornography. I'll show you my collection sometime. Um, okay, maybe one day. But you have to wonder what some of his clients have asked to see. I mean, this man has worked with some of the biggest bands in the world, like these guys. You too, produced by Brian Eno, a proud connoisseur of pornography. And finally, I have this one about Kurt Cobain. And no, it is not about whether he was murdered or not. That falls squarely in the conspiracy theory file. This story has to do with something called a dream machine. Now, I don't know if these things exist, but there was a cult-like organization based out of Seattle called Friends Understanding Kurt, and they say that his death in 1994 was linked to the use of something called a dream machine. This is a trance-inducing device invented by writer William Burroughs. The machine consists of a cylinder with a light source inside. When you switch it on, the cylinder rotates, causing the light to flash at a rate of exactly 10.56 times per second. The theory is that if you stare at the flashes, you will be reduced to a trance-like state. In the 1960s, several people who experimented with these machines allegedly committed suicide. So, what's the connection between William Burroughs and Kurt? How would he come to be acquainted with such a piece of equipment? Well, in 1992, Kurt and Burroughs not only met, but collaborated on a strange spoken word piece. Kurt provided all the guitar sounds while Burroughs read one of his stories. It was called The Priest, they called him. Fight tuberculosis, folks. Christmas Eve, an old junkie selling Christmas seals on North Park Street. The priest, they called him. 
Fight tuberculosis, folks. People hurried by, gray shadows on a distant wall. It was getting late and no money to score. He turned into a side street and the lake wind hit him like a knife. You got that? That's William Burroughs and Kurt Cobain on guitar from 1993 with a piece called The Priest, they called him. Burroughs was apparently so pleased with how this recording turned out that he told Kurt about the dream machine. He even fixed him up with a guy in San Francisco named Dave Woodward who built machines for special clients. Kurt is said to have ordered one immediately, but then Courtney Love found out and, sensing how dangerous this thing could be, tried to pay Woodward not to deliver it. But Kurt could not be stopped. According to Friends of Kurt, he was using the machine for up to 72 hours at a time, and if you can believe their research, the machine was found just 20 feet away from his dead body on April 8, 1994. Neither the police nor the coroner investigated the connection. Oh, and there's more. Shortly after Kurt's death, whole bassist Christine Pfaff got a hold of the machine, and she began using it for long periods of time, again against the wishes of Courtney. By mid-June, Kristen was dead, too. A heroin overdose. Now, all the people connected with Kurt and Kristen say that this whole dream machine theory is just some sick joke. But this group, Friends Understanding Kurt, will tell you otherwise. It is a myth that just won't go away. We'll leave it at that. Back in a moment. More of the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. I'm not going to lie. Part of the fun about being a music fan is to get into the stories behind the artists and the songs and the albums. And sometimes the more fantastical, the better. Look, it's showbiz. It's brand management. It's marketing. And sometimes it's just plain rumors and allegations and unsubstantiated alternative facts. Of course, it's best that we get the truth about the more disturbing ones, but for all the others, sometimes you just want to go with it. You don't want to look behind the curtain too many times, right? If there is anything on this topic that you would like to discuss, or maybe there's a myth or legend you want investigated, I can always be reached at alan at alancross.ca. I will reply. You may find things of interest at my website, which is a journalofmusicalthings.com. I update that thing every single day. And if you don't have time to browse, get the free daily newsletter. It features a list of the day's big stories, and you will never be spammed. Oh, and there's also the Ongoing History of New Music podcasts. Get them wherever you get your favorite podcasts. For everything else, we can connect on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and through Google Play.